it could trigger something in the brain that goes like it did with me. You know, as soon as I got high, I realized exactly what I wanted to do with my life, and that was to experience life. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. As a longtime stoner, it's kind of weird hearing people say weed is, quote, mainstream now, when merely possessing the plant stuff can still earn you serious consequences in many parts of the world. But the growing popularity of cannabis is unmistakable. Marijuana is now a global, multi-billion dollar industry, which, you know, to be fair, it always was, only now it's all legitimate and overtaxed and commercialized instead of enriching drug cartels, although it still does that to some extent. Regardless, cannabis is more popular than ever, with a rapidly growing fandom, especially among older generations. Even Martha Stewart is into CBD now. But while it's great to see so many people starting to dig the awesome benefits cannabis sativa offers, it's important to contextualize the culture and history that got us here. I'm Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. Before we get to today's episode, which is obviously about the devil's lettuce, we'd like to remind folks that Narcotica is an ad-free, listener-funded program. We could be using this space to sell you a ritzy rehab package or tell you to buy some stupid sleep supplement, but we're not. If you want to help us keep this show running, all you have to do is join us at patreon.com slash narcotica. Patrons can request stickers or a shout-out on the show. We have other perks that we're developing, but look, we know times are lean right now, understatement of the year, so if you can't help us monetarily, you can give us a boost by rating us, liking us, sharing us, telling all your friends about us, etc. And that's it. Now back to Narcotica. On this show, we've done more than 50 episodes about all kinds of drugs. Opioids, meth, cocaine, psilocybin magic mushrooms, ketamine, even sort of obscure stuff like antibiotics and salvia. But we've never done an episode entirely devoted to cannabis. How weird is that? one of the world's most popular drugs, one I use pretty much every day, and we just haven't gotten to it. So we thought we'd start things off with a bang and bring in one of Weed's biggest fans, none other than comedian, musician, and world-famous stoner, Tommy Chong of Cheech and Chong fame. Tommy, welcome to the show. Please sit down. Everybody sit down. <laughs> I'm just an ordinary guy. Also on the show are Narcotica co-hosts Zachary Siegel and Christopher Morath. Beaming from Chicago and Philadelphia, respectively. Say hello, guys. Hey, guys. Glad to be here. First of all, what are your thoughts on this moment? Did you ever think you would live in a time where around 15 states had legalized recreational marijuana, 35 have medical cannabis, etc.? Yeah, because seeing how I'm poorly educated, yeah, I, 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 I always thought we would be in a state where everything's legal. Where I come from, yeah, it was, uh, there, there was penalties, but it was still as healthy as it is today. So, uh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I've always in, imagined, uh, people getting hip, you know, to being turned on and saying, Oh, yeah, this, this is a medicine. So you were born in, in Canada, right? And you, 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 you grew up there. And so, like in America, our drug education, is very like anti-drug. It's all like cannabis or marijuana makes like your brain broken and like there's all these negative effects and like 
makes you lazy and unmotivated. <laughs> you just you just described me. <laughs> so so it's true. Do you remember your drug education and like sort of when you sort of I don't know maybe realized like hey this isn't exactly right. What's up here? Well, no, I uh, I grew up in the fifties. You know that's when I went to school, and uh, in the fifties everybody believed that really did uh, you know make you want to kill your parents and reefer madness you know. yeah reefer madness oh they totally believed that i mean to the point where i mean it was scared they were i was scared of it <laughs> i was the, the first time i got high you know my my buddy went to la he came back with a lenny bruce record and a and a joint and he handed them both to me and i i i put it in my pocket i wasn't going to light it up i i didn't know what it was going to do and so they um so he pulled another one out, you know, lit it up and got me high. And then I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take all you got. <laughs> I was hooked. And, and it was highly, highly, highly illegal then. You know, people went to jail for years, years for, for a joint, you know, uh, or, or dealing a, a dime bag. Uh, I had a boarder at my house one time, my parents' house. And uh, yeah, he got caught. With a with a dime bag, and went to jail for a year. So yeah, I you know I've never really understood laws. <laughs> you know, when you grow up like like I did in the fifties, like I said, racism was the law of the land, and that's exactly what's what the marijuana laws were and still are. It was just a plain, simple racist law, and. Um, now, you know, people are starting to sober up. Well, so you were a musician before you got into um, comedic roles and stuff. Can you talk a little bit about your early years? What got you into music and who some of your early influences were? Well, I, I started out as a country, country musician. And it, and wasn't, <laughs> it, it wasn't for pleasure. It was for work. <laughs> Because I learned how to play guitar when I was like eight years old, and uh, and in the country, that's 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 how old you have to be to start doing work like a man, you know, and like you're driving tractors or trucks. They got country with, music in Canada, huh? <laughs> yeah, are you kidding? That's where it started. I mean, that's you know, I I was in the country. We only had one radio station. And and at the time, I don't think we, yeah, we had a radio and that was it. So I uh, I started playing uh, for dances, for parties. I was a backup guitar player. And, and that's how I got into uh, playing guitar. And then I, when I was a teenager, I went to Army Cadets. And uh, I met a, a, a First Nations uh, a young Elvis Presley impersonator. Uh, he was going to be. He wasn't when I met him, but he ended up being a Elvis Presley impersonator. And we used to just play for our own fun at, in the barracks, uh, army cadets, you know, just to sit around and play like in the movies, you know, where they just sit around, Hey, please too. And, um, yeah. uh, he became uh, an Elvis impersonator. And so we were doing shows in front of high school, uh, lunch, uh, lunchtime crowds. <laughs> and, uh, I got hooked. But then you had a song I, to go on the top 100, right? You, you had a hit. I eventually, I eventually, I eventually got a, wrote a rhythm and blues poem. 
and then uh, this uh, this great uh, composer uh, who's no longer with us, Canadian, he uh, took my poem and made it into a, a, a hit song. Does your mama know about me? Recorded by Diana Ross, Jermaine Jackson, and cool. uh, Bobby Taylor and the Vancouver's. How old were you when that went down? Oh, I was pretty old then. I was in my 30s. I was in my, about my 30s, yeah. We won a, 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 a what do you call it, a teen, a teen fair, teen fair contest, and we won a, a recording contract. <laughs> but when, we, when the guy went to pay it off, we had to go to the nearest radio station, and they recorded uh, us we're in the hallway with our instruments <laughs> and uh, and they're taping us on a, a quarter inch reel and and that was my first record that I put out I had, I had a instrumental on the b-side called Junior's Jerk <laughs> <laughs> how did you meet uh, Cheech Marin Cheech uh, we met I, I I went to you know the hit the music phase then uh, then I got fired. I got fired from Motown by mistake, kind of, you know. We were we ended up being a backup band because, uh, like, all hit uh, groups, you know, the first thing they do, the Sharks come in and take the singer, take the best of the the bunch, if, if they're willing to go. And, and Bobby, even though we, we never had but that one hit, he was ready to go. So I got fired from Motown and I went back to Vancouver and started a improvisational theater in a topless nightclub. And uh, that's where I met Cheech. Yeah, he, we needed a straight man and uh, he applied for the job. But he auditioned us. That, that was the funny part. What do you mean? Well, I bet I went out to his where he was working he was he was selling um hippie newspapers uh, but he was living with the editor who had a nice house in in richmond bc out by the airport in vancouver and so i went out to where he was working they had a, a whole magazine set up you know little booths and and at the, at the time you know was it computers no typewriters uh, and <laughs> And uh, I met Cheech and I told him, you know, what I had going. And he says, I'll come down and check you out. You know, of course. So he was going to audition before before he got the job. And so he, when he saw the, the group, he came backstage and said, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm in. <laughs> and uh, that's how I met Cheech. And then we got fired because we had changed the strip club into <laughs> into a theater. And then so instead of like 20 drunk bikers throwing money everywhere, we ended up with a theater crowd. Yeah, yeah. when you run a strip club, you, you know, you, there's a little gangster edge to you, you know. And, and gangsters don't mess around. Hey, you're in, you're out. Hey, you're out. <laughs> and, and even though I own the club, <laughs> uh, we got fired. But, I, you know, I've always went ahead. Every time I got fired, I, I, I jumped ahead. Uh, I moved you know, one door closed, another one opened. And so then Cheech and I went to um, L.A. because I had a family living in L.A. And this is where you go when you want to make it. So we, we came down to L.A. 
And we uh, used a scooter, a little Honda 90. That was our transportation. And we just went around, hit all the places where you could play free. There was no comedy clubs. There were uh, just uh, like small nightclubs, black nightclubs, R&B bands, you know, intermission, floor show. And then some, uh, and one hippie club. And that's where we really evolved. Uh, that's where we got the Latino character. And, uh, and the rest is history. Then we got discovered at a folk club. And, uh, then we, uh, cut a record and cut another one, then another one, and another one. Do I remember the, uh, the big rolling paper you put in one of them. And then, yeah, <laughs> pretty sure yeah. we tried to use that. <laughs> it's still selling. It sounds, yeah. it sounds like crazy, you know, and it's so funny because people really, you know, a lot of people don't have a record player and even if they do, they don't play it. What was the sort of creative uh, kind of process like for, for you? Would, would you sit down and write together? Was, there, was it mostly improv? Like, how'd you get your sketches down? It was mostly improv. It was all improv, really. The only thing I wrote, really, was uh, the set list. You know, what what we're going to do. Okay, we'll start off with this, then we'll go here. and Because I, I used to, when I had a band, you know, we always had a set list <clears throat> and then we figure out what, what we're going to do. And, and that's all we ever wrote between Cheech and Chong because, you know, when you work in a strip club, like we did for nine months, I, you, you develop this, a sense of knowing what the other guy's going to do. You know what I'm saying? You know, you, you, you find what buttons to push. And, and that's that's what uh, Cheech and I discovered. And so when when we did the movies, we did the movies like we did our records. You know, we would, when we did our record, we only rehearsed one time, and that became our biggest hit record. That was the Dage Not Here, and uh, and it was the rehearsal that that we recorded. We never did get around to doing the bit. <laughs> it was all the intro, and and because I wouldn't let him in the door. Hey, who is it? <laughs> it was very funny because it was real. And uh, and then when we started, then we started going to the studio, and then we realized we don't need all the trappings, and so we 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 jumped ahead, you know, like 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 you do now. You know, we didn't need a whole crew of engineers and, and gophers and stuff like that. You know, producers. We just needed a guy to put push the on button. <laughs> and push the off button. That's all. And and so that's how we did our records. And we kind of did our movies. Movies were different. Movies were a lot different because a, a movie by nature is like working with with a, an entire family. You know where everybody has a job. You know that's one thing about a movie crew. If you're standing there, you pick up something or hold something. <laughs> Or, or, or move out of the way, you know? And so that's, that's how we, uh, it was our ability to, uh, to the improvisational theater give us the ability to find the, find the core of, of whatever we were doing, you know? And that, and that really is, that's a, the, the basic rule of acting, you know? Find out who you are 
and then act accordingly. Tommy, so that's a good segue into asking you, you know, how much of how much of your character was just you um, and how much was sort of an exaggerated maybe caricature of, of you? Yeah, you can't really divide. Actors can't really divide. I, yeah, I know they say, you know, uh, no, everything is 100 percent me. It's just uh, me. It, it's me doing certain evolutions of 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 of, uh, of myself basically you know there was a time when i was at you know <laughs> when i played the the stoner you know there was a time when i was not not really that guy but i knew that guy you know because i'm a writer if there's one thing that i i will say i am is and then that's a writer because i always write I'm writing everything. Even when I was a kid in, in school, you know, I'd read my literature books before I would do anything. And then I, I couldn't understand math. I couldn't because I never really applied myself, but to writing. And so I'm a writer and writers, we, we pick up stories. We pick up all sorts of weird characteristics about someone. Uh, and that's why uh, Merle Streep, is such a phenomenal actress because she's she's got it down to the science where she like she can she can dig all that out out, out of a character the, those those little movements and what it is is communicating you're you're communicating with your audience but you're doing it in such a subtle way that the audience can't help but watch you you know the, what's the, Michael Caine the actor you know he once gave a he gave out a, a secret of acting, you know, and the secret really is don't blink, you know, because as long as you, you got your eyes open, you you got people drawn into your your arms, you know, because they're they're reading everything you're you're giving them uh, with your eyes, but the minute you blink or look away or something, you know, you can break that that thing, which they do purposely. That, that, that's, that's what Cheech and I, and Cheech and I found out uh, right into the fire. You know, there was no in between. Like there was no school. Like we never went to acting school or directing school or, or movie school. I wish I had a, but, but no, it's a, the, what we went through was life school, the school of life. Yeah. And, and, and it's those jobs that you had that, no one else would take and that's the only reason you got the job <laughs> those kind of jobs you know they became for me as a writer they became a, a source of uh, wealth you know and uh and that's and when when i met cheech and also there, there's an also there's a thing about uh faith the belief the belief in something uh and, and, and that's what they say, you know, people, the spiritual or the religious, the religious path, they're always talking about people of faith, people of faith. Well, what is faith? Faith is a supreme belief in something. And when that something is yourself, then you become the vehicle at whatever you believe in, whatever it is, because in our physical world, there has to be a down 
to create an up. <laughs> you can't have up without down. You can't have good without evil. And that's why evil can be so fascinating. Because when someone is perfectly evil, they're, 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 they're fascinating. Because you're seeing perfection. Did you ever play evil characters, bad characters? Ever ever play the bad guy? Only on stage. But yeah, yeah, on, on stage, yeah. Teach I, 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 I did a bit, The Undercover Cop. And I was an undercover cop. And and I, <laughs> I was, ooh, <laughs> I was smoking as a bad guy. But we had such a good, oh man, that bit. And we, we put that bit with uh, Dave's Not Here. Because we could never do our record bits on stage. And that was a kind of a, it was a challenge in a way, but it was also uh, respect for the art of uh, recording. So I'm curious, I mean, do you still use cannabis? And if so, what strains do you like? Um, I've also heard that, you know, as you age, your relationship with cannabis kind of evolves. You know, I, I'm someone that smokes daily. And I've kind of felt that as I've gotten older, my relationship with weed changes. And you're 82. Yeah. I wonder how that's changed yeah. for you. Well, you think about what cannabis does to you. You know, it it slows you down and puts you in the moment. You know, and, uh, and 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 it depends. See, it puts you in the moment, so it depends on what you're doing with those moments. You see, like if you're plotting to kill somebody, you'll probably come up with a real good plan. Because you're in the moment, you know. <laughs> or if you're uh, a, a, a football player, a bodybuilder, you know, put you in the moment. And and, and so if you got to, you know, do these certain moves, you know, it it sharpens, it relaxes the brain, and and it turns the everything over to body memory. You know, so so. It can it can do a, hey but but again you know it depends on what brain is work relaxing you know because sometimes in in a in a lot of cases you know there's there's certain people that should should never go near cannabis because it'll open the door that'll scare the hell out of them sometimes you know and it has you know that's what paranoia is paranoia right. is extreme fear. If, if, and if you get that fear, oh man, it's not good. But see again, you see what, what paranoia does: the, the fight or flight. You know, when an animal senses danger, it, it it either runs like hell or freezes. You know, fight or flight, and 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 that's what paranoia does. Paranoia is really fear of the unknown. And uh, but if you have faith, you see, this is where faith comes in. Because if you have faith, you know there's nothing to be afraid of. That sound in the dark, it's not a boogeyman. It's the wind blowing a leaf, you know, branch against the window, you know. But then again, it could trigger something in the mind that goes like it did with me. You know, as soon as I got high, I realized exactly what I wanted to do with my life. And that was to experience life. You know, not to be told about other people's experiences with life, but to go out there and become that ditch digger, become the, the, the taxi driver, become the, the waiter, become the, you know, become everything. Cause all you're doing then, if you're a writer, all you're doing is, is you're in disguise, <laughs> you know, 
like waiters can hear stuff that wives and husbands don't hear. <laughs> you know, you know. I was so, a waiter uh, for fifteen years. That is true. <laughs> um, you, you you become a therapist. We're all journalists and and writers, and, and we all cover drugs quite a bit. And I think all three of us really have and really been embedded in America's drug culture, the drug laws, the and of course that's why we're we're talking to you because like your story in American drug culture is so it's almost like the origin story the the, the genesis of the stoner role and and like you were coming up in, in comedy in the 70s and and that's when like guys like Ronald Reagan and and John Wayne were running Hollywood <laughs> and and you know the the rugged individual driving off into the sunset like that was the mainstream culture and so how conscious were you of trying to subvert that or or be identified with the counterculture at that time i had a leg up with it because i was half chinese i'm half brown but I could be anybody. I look like uh, an Arab, an Italian, uh, uh, anything, a Scotch, Irish, you know. And so I, I had I had a nice leg up with that, but uh, with all cultures, you see. That's why I could fit into the black culture uh, seamlessly, you know, and uh, and I did. I mean, I mean, I not only have Chinese, but then I married a black girl. And uh, and I, I to, I've got two beautiful black uh, children, and and then my grandson, who is half black, uh, no, let's see, my daughter's half black, so he's a quarter, and uh, and he married a Chinese girl, and so we started the, the whole cycle again. Now he's got half, I don't know, <laughs> he's got mixed. There's a mixed family, and my son just married a. a uh, Indonesian lady, Rama, and, and she has children. I mean, that's that was my power, that I, I represent everybody. And so, therefore, I could, I did. I, I literally, like I said, I had a hit parade, a, a hit song on, a, on the Black Station. And it never really went popular. It just stayed on the rhythm and blues charts forever. So, so yeah, that was... And, and, and even, even in the, when I, when I went to prison, you know, I was treated like a celebrity by everybody. I had, because I'd been on Dr. Dre's rap record. Wow. I had, I had black kids looking at me, you know, yeah, he was on Dr. Dre. <laughs> oh man. Is your cellmate the, uh, the Wolf of Wall Street? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wolf of Wall Street. And isn't it funny because, uh, they put celebrities in in the prison together, and so I ended up with. And I heard he was coming. Everybody did, and and we we we, we hit it off. We you know he 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 he's such a genius. I mean he is a genius. We we know we never buddy buddied in prison because he always had uh, people working for him. You know, there's a, doing his bidding. You know, because when you're rich in in prison, you you pay with the commissary. You know, you buy a guy's uh, commissary, you know, the food, whatever they need. And uh, there's a lot of people in prison. They don't have any money to do that. So so they work for the richer prisons. 
And so, so Jordan, but we shared a, a cubicle and I'd be writing every night. And uh, one night he, he just asked me, what are you doing? And I told him, I'm writing my book. And he goes, you know, I'm going to write a book. And uh, he started writing and then he showed me what he wrote, you know, show me how smart he was. <laughs> and uh, he, he had no idea. Well, I guess he did. You know, I, I was going to say he, he didn't know what to expect, but I, I think he did. And which is because he is too smart. He, he, he is brilliant. And so when I read what he wrote, it was a copy, almost word for word of Bonfires of the Vanities by, oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, by Tom Wolf. And so I told him, and, you know, I guess it was a test, you know, because I could have said, oh, wow, man, you, you're, you're really this is incredible, <laughs> you know, but I didn't, I said, this is, you didn't write shit, he goes, what? <laughs> then he says, well, what should I write? I said, well, write those stories that you've been telling me every night, because he used to put me to sleep every night with a new story about his life as the Wolf of Wall Street. He wasn't called the Wolf of Wall Street at the time, uh, you know, when he was telling me that, but he was telling me all these great stories, you know, but, you know, I heard about him, you know, he was that stock swim you know manipulator and he had made hundreds of millions of dollars and <laughs> uh but the stories he told me you know because he, he like the movie if you saw the movie he's a quaalude freak and that was his downfall <laughs> he he got addicted to quaaludes which <laughs> oh they're God. the worst they're the worst there's how can you trade stocks on quaaludes <laughs> Yeah, they turn you into a rubber man. <laughs> yeah, you know, you you can't get out of your own way. I pictured those guys doing cocaine, but quaaludes, all right. Quaaludes, that was his whole thing. And they would do qua they would do coke so they could you know, maintain, you know, the you know, cut the quaalude high. But the quaaludes is all about sex. See, that's that's what it was. Rich guys, that's what they get addicted to. Wealthy guys, you know, that's why they get those zillion-dollar yachts. They hit, yeah. So you get out there and you, they hire the hookers and they load up the they load up the boat with with all the booze and and all the chicks they can they can afford or find, and away they go. And and it's a debauchery, <laughs> you know, from then on in, because. Uh, you know, those guys, you know, like someone asked me, do you think Trump ever smoked a joint? I said, of course he did. And they said, how do you know? I said, well, he's always been around beautiful women. And, and in every case, it's always the beautiful women. I need to get high. <laughs> you know, to deal with what we're dealing with, I need to get high. <laughs> and and then when they're putting them through their little sexual trips, it's here smoke this what are you going to refuse <laughs> you're going to say oh no it sounds like those those wall street guys were the real were the real radical drug users at that time not not the stoners and the hippies these guys were... they were the stoners the stoners and the hippies were too busy trying to be, stay stoners and hippies you know <laughs> finding a place to live trying you know uh, selling, making arts and crafts, selling little things here and there, mu playing music, waiting tables, you know, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're healthy and, and they're, they're much healthier. It's the rich people 
and the famous people. And when you get, and it doesn't matter who you are, be it Prince or or be it any of those guys, you know, that you know when you get into the Michael Jackson, you get into that money, then you can buy any kind of drug uh, available, and then you got guys. Uh, you know, that want that money of yours. You buy a doctor to get you any drug. <laughs> yeah. Get it the legal, you know, white market way. Yeah, you can do all that. You, you can do anything. And and that's that that's the only thing. A lot of these rich guys, what they have, they have the ability to make money. And they're smart. They're intelligent. And their only downfall really is what girls think of them. You know, and uh, you find a lot of those rich guys, man, they, they got a lot of money, but, uh, you know, they have to buy, they have to buy their love. Yeah. They have to buy their love. And that was the problem with, with, with Tiger, you know, because Tiger would buy his love, but he, he wouldn't pay the bill. <laughs> it's, it's same as, same as, you know, he tried to negotiate when, when, when the bill came due, you know, you're not supposed to negotiate. He's a billionaire. What, what, what's he doing? That's what I'm saying. But it's a habit these guys got, you know, and I've, I've been around them. I know I got billionaire friends. They'll park blocks away so they don't have to pay the ballet. And they got more money than they'll ever spend in their lifetime. You know, if, if they blew it every day. Like I was, was this one Lebanese uh, uh, guy? That's uh, <laughs> a funny story. I was looking for a little boat, you know, uh, just a little skiff, 14 footer, you know. But the word went out that Tommy John was looking for a boat. And so this rich Lebanese guy, he's had three yachts that he wanted to show me. <laughs> he's trying to sell one of them. And each three yacht had a crew. <laughs> That weren't doing anything except sitting there waiting for him to say, let's go. And, and so, so I saw the, the problems of the rich, you know, when you have too much. And, and, uh, so I, I understand, uh, uh, I, I, I understand that, that, that mindset now, you know. As Zach sort of uh, alluded to, you know, in, in, in the late 70s and mid 70s, when, when you were making up in smoke, uh, you know, there was a real, you know, anti-drug fervor. Marijuana was seen as a gateway drug into harder, you know, things. How hard was that movie to make and, and, and get bought? You know, who, 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 who took a chance on it? You know, were you surprised at how well it did? It, it was a, a Lou Adler. We wrote it. We starred in it. But Lou was the 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 guy that made it happen i i, I wanted to get I, in fact i wrote another movie uh, called uh, jack and the weed stock and uh yeah it that was the one i was working on because we we're supposed to go on tour again and i said no nah, nah, i'm not going on tour i'm going to do a movie and so right away cheech and lou went oh we're going to do a movie okay and so lou made the deal uh, with paramount because he had Prince with Parent, but it was Lou Adler. Lou Adler put it, put the deal together. And then we, we were looking for, you know, we were trying to do it, uh, the way the, they made movies back then. And, and so they, we needed a director, you know, and so, so we looked at, uh, Floyd Matrix, uh, who had done American Graffiti, I think, a few others, but we never got along. 
you know, because, you know, it was a Cheech and Chong movie. We don't know what it is until we shoot it, until we get Did there. you smoke actual weed on, on, on set? Or... <laughs> uh, not, not, not the big joints. You know, that was all, <laughs> that was all movie dope. But in between, in between takes, Cheech and I would, would talk, we shared joint. And, uh, it, it really helped, really helped. But the, the secret of the movie really was Lou Adler. Lou Adler had these big way of doing things, you know. But we've never had a hit that big since, you know. And I'm not saying we didn't do a good movie. Like I figured, next movie got actually more critical acclaim, uh, but not, not near because uh, Lou, you got to get around people that are big money thinkers, you know. And and they they're, they're the ones that'll bring in the stars that'll that, you know. And that's what Lou did. He brought in Stacy Keach. He brought in, uh, you know. My father, you know, uh, and, and so he's, uh, so Lou, Lou really was, uh, the reason that movie went as crazy as it did. Just for some context for our listeners that this movie brought $30 million it, within the first like couple weeks it was out. And that's like 120 million in today's currency. And it was the second, the, the number two grossing film in the country at the time, right behind Animal House. So this was like, a phenomenon this blew up and like were you surprised by its success well first of all figure it cost less than it was supposed to cost uh we've got a million to do it and i think we made it for eight hundred thousand dollars so so that that, that's without our wages you know without our our pay but we actually made it under a million dollars that that movie and, uh, yeah, you know, it, it, it was such a groundbreaker that, and it never had a message, but it had a overall message, you know, the, the plot itself, or the, it was just a, uh, the first reality show, really. It was like a, the, the day in the life of a stoner in a, in a, in a Chicano, the lowrider, you know, that's all. And then, uh, you know, then we, we made it work, but uh, it got the right wing people. They 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 jumped on. You know the Christians and what was her name? I can't even think of her name now. Uh, Tupper Gore. Tipper Gore. Yeah. yeah. Tipper Gore. She was against you know, heavy metal because of the lyrics. And, yeah, she you know. she 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 took it to Congress, and they had a whole hearing about heavy metal, and they're trying to get the music industry to put sort of like what the MPAA does for for movies, like a rated R film. They wanted like rated R music or, or whatever, you know. Well, they, we we changed the rating system because they had no drug use, uh, excessive drug use warnings on any movie, and so our, our movie bypassed it in the advertisement and, and our logo was don't go straight to this movie <laughs> uh, yeah we uh no we, we we broke it it came back to haunt me when i when i was sentenced to prison uh for for selling bongs you know which i never did this is operation pipe dreams yeah operation pipe dreams which i had to take I took the rap, you know, because they were going to go after my son who was selling it. And they just wanted me anyway. They wouldn't have touched him, but I couldn't take that chance. And they brought up Up and Smoke. They said, you know, I made millions 
making fun of uh, law enforcement agents. Oh my god! It's it's in it's in the court transcript. You were persecuted. <laughs> yeah, you were basically targeted. Like, oh yeah. How did that feel? Like the the federal government like explicitly. The, the, if people want more details, there's this really great documentary, uh, aka Tommy Chong, which I I just watched. The whole thing's on YouTube. It's great. Um, but yeah, even Operation Pipe Dreams is only two letters away from Nice Dreams, the name of the store where <laughs> the bongs are being sold from. It's it's ridiculous. How did that make you feel that they they targeted you this way? Uh, no, no, they elevated me. You know, they took me from you know pop comedian to activist to to you know it gave me a voice. Give me a voice. Give me, you know, I, like I'm doing shows like this. You know, you know, people asking me, they want to know because, you know, I, I really did it. I, it wasn't hard because it's ordained. I believe not, there's no accidents. Everything happens for a reason. And, and especially my life. You know, I've always believed that. Like I said, it's, it's a faith believed life. It's, it's what you believe is how you're going to live and what you believe in. Now you can believe in the worst things in the world, you know, like people do. And, but they'll live that whole life for that experience. See, that's the whole point. Now, the good news as, as the prophets have always gave us is that we can cho choose our, the life that we live, you know, and, uh, and I did, and that's exactly what I did. I, I chose this life. I chose every every move that I made. It was my choice. I wanted to make it. Like I really wanted to go to jail, and and I've been I had that in my mind since I was 15 years old. And and the, the tattoo I got I got from a guy that just got out of jail in, in the 50s. It was tough. In the 50s, it was like serious uh in, in the jail he went into had a silent system and the silent system was that you did not utter a sound from the time you walk through the gates until the time you're released and get out of the gates you cannot utter a sound unless you're given permission to and erwin mccann give me that tattoo because it was a, it's a homemade tattoo and the way he did it was a, uh, a straight ne uh, needle or a pin, uh, bobby pin or what? Not a bobby pin, but you know, safety pin tied to a pencil point, and and, and made a made a point. And he would dig under the skin, like the poke with method. ink, with ink, and then poke it. Yeah. <clears throat> and so, so in in his prison. Like I said, sciences. Can, can you imagine back in those days? Whoa. They, the, the lash was still applied in Canada for rape. If you got caught for rape, you could get five, ten lashes, uh, back with a cat of nine tails on the bare back. And they had another, uh, uh, punishment in Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada, where they would strap a prisoner across a, a what do you call it? A uh, gymnast horse. And, and they put the hands on one side and feet on the other side, pull his pants down and then whack him with a, a five foot cricket bat that was part rubber and metal. It was an alloy with perforated holes. 
one whack, if you're lucky, you passed out with the first whack. If you survived two, that was weird. And then after the fourth or fifth, while well, you're totally, they quit doing it because you're not feeling anything anyway. And so you usually get three or four. And sometimes guys got many as 15. Uh, and uh, and then you slept on your stomach for the rest of your stay in prison. Uh, and, and that would be for talking. <laughs> that would be for for uh, giving a, a guard a dirty look. <laughs> so so prison was was pretty rough. And, and and so back in those days, you know, when like the white supremacist, I mean, uh, in in the states, they had to do that to survive. You know, to survive. they had to gang up. And uh, that was and that you know now I lived through all that. And then, I, then I go to prison, <laughs> and it's evolved to the point where that if you didn't have a great uh, high school education, then you were mandated to to get a high school education. <laughs> and, and so when I, you know, my prison, it was like a camp or or a monastery, because all I did, you know, was read my spiritual books and uh, work in the garden, and making bongs out of clay. You did. You did nine months, right? Sentenced to yeah. nine months. Yes, yeah, I did nine months. And you made bongs in size. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, listen. Not only made them out of clay, but I built a kiln in the Indian sweat lodge area. I built a kiln, <laughs> and I fired my bongs. It took a weekend. It didn't work. I didn't get the fire hot enough because I couldn't stoke it. I, and I had a railroad tie in in, in there. And the reason I could do it on the weekend is that there was very light uh, personnel there and they didn't look out the window. And so, oh man, uh, you know, my, the, the prison I was in, Taft, you could, the prisoners really ran the whole prison, you know, and they'd try to catch me smoking weed. You know, that, that was a big game. They would, uh, I, I'd be offered weed and then, I'd, you know, 20 minutes later, they would call me into the, control to get me drug tested but i never failed a test i never smoked for for three years so i I was a good guy do you still smoke now and if if you do like what kind of strains do you like really i'm 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 way behind on testing the strains you know i was was given strains about five ten years ago at the emerald cup and i'm still testing them but the trouble is i tested then i can't remember what <laughs> bottle I got it out of what strain it is. And so that's a good name for it, strain, because it, it, it is a strain to try to do all that shit. <laughs> yeah, I had a job once reviewing weed, and it was really hard because it's be like, it's kind of all the same, but it's yeah. not, sort of slightly different. You know, it's hard to say. It was hard for me. It depends on you. It depends on what you've eaten. It depends the time of day. It depends on uh, on the weather. It depends that's on your mood. It all depends on you. It depends on why you're smoking. You know, I got these strips that are, that that my friends love them. Maybe because they're free, but for me, but uh, but they're uh, they're breast strips, and 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 you can um, these they're, they're ten milligrams. I got some special ones made for me for with twenty milligrams, but 
<laughs> 20, 20 is like an all day siesta. Yeah, I eat like two, little two milligram edible bites, and that's like the perfect zone for me. I guess I'm a lightweight. No, I'm a lightweight too, man. I'm a one toker too. I, I uh, yeah, I, but the thing is, is it's I, I it's a one toke, but then maybe a half hour later I'll do another toke. And then maybe a half hour later, I'll do another talk, you know, so it's uh, a one talker, but it's a one talk all day. How do you feel? How do you feel about where the cannabis industry is going now? You know, like 15 states have legalized it and there's like celebrities endorsing it. You got like Martha Stewart and Snoop Dogg and Willie Nelson. Like, like, what, what do you think about the kind of. The, the the business side of this because like it was criminalized for so long and now people are getting rich off of it like how, oh, what do you think about that oh absolutely you know what you know what the cannabis industry is like it's like watching the beginning of an avalanche you know at first this little pebble starts rolling down the mountain you know then it hits another pebble and then it, it, pretty soon you got a couple of them and pretty soon oh it hits a bigger rock and next thing you know, next thing you know, you got a half a mountain coming down. That's what the cannabis industry is. That's why it's so silly, you know, when they come in, to, like in Colorado, you know, you got to tag all the all the plants and all you know, that. That ain't going to last, you know, because eventually, when they legalize it, when we can bank our money, uh, big business will come in. And there's no doubt about it. The cannabis business will always have its mom and pops. It will always be there. Now, I used to say, you know, when it's legal, your grandmother will grow more pot than you'll be able to use. <laughs> because, and that's usually the case. Now, I, I know people that, that grow in, in two, three crops a year. <laughs> and, and what do they do? They, you know, they, it's not all personal use. <laughs> and so the cannabis industry is, is perfect for its time. There, there, there's nothing you could, there's nothing you could do about it. You know, it's like this pandemic. You know, it's something that you have to deal with, and deal with it in 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 an intelligent manner, and and that's what cannabis is doing. Cannabis is, is changing the face from the hippie anti-war person to the uh, old lady that can't sleep all night uh, look. You know, and and that's good. That's really good. And the thing is, you can't control people's taste. You know, if you could, oh, boy, you know, all you can do is cater to their taste. And, and that's what that's what's happening now. So what will happen with the cannabis world all over is that once it gets legal, then states will out or states and then countries will try to outdo themselves with the way they, they handle it. You know, and it, it'll all be handled in, in such a way that suits the the, the government of the, of the area, you know, or the the, the will of the people. You know. Cannabis, by the way, is going to change uh, Russia. It's going to change all those dictatorships, uh, places, just like the internet is doing. And and those guys are going to go like Trump. You know, they're going to be uh, eliminated eventually. And uh, because cannabis. Like I said, it 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 affects the mind. It affects the mind, and so right now it's affecting the mind of of governors, senators. You know, you know Cory Booker and Pamela Harris. You know, <laughs> you know they all <clears throat> like Barack Obama. You know, 
they all know about cannabis. Now, I, I really truly believe that uh, <coughs> Rush Limbaugh and uh, and Donald Trump uh, they tried it, but they don't like it, you know, because it, <laughs> it interferes with their their ability to be an idiot. Limbaugh liked oxycotton. He he was into the opioids and cigars, and he's dead. Cigars. <laughs> yeah. In preparation for this uh, for this segment, I, I I I did a bit of googling and I saw you and Cheech uh, performing. I think on um, George Lopez. I don't know how long ago that was. Um, you did Mexican Americans, and and then you transitioned and sort of into sort of like a legalized anthem. I thought it was really great. Uh, oh right, right, yeah. Right, right. Um, so uh, does your does your opposition to you know prohibition extend to other drugs as well? Well. It's medicine. Drugs are medicine, no matter how you look at it. You know. it. It's medicine. And medicine is designed to make you feel better. That's all. And to heal, sometimes to heal. Other times it just, you know, eliminates the pain. You know, and that's what, that's what heroin and, uh, uh, you know, uh, those drugs, that's what they do. They eliminate pain. Now, the trouble is the pain comes back too soon <laughs> and it's only eliminated temporarily and therefore it's not a good fix. But but that's what poor people, that's all they can afford, you know, you know, uh, like you, you talk about uh, legalizing all drugs, which yeah, they should, because like rich people, all drugs have always been legal for these people. You know, and the only time, unless they get caught doing something stupid, you know, like a DUI or, or you get caught in the wrong place at the wrong time, no one's going to bother rich people. Look, look, look at the Rolling Stones, you know, look at Meg and, and Keith. They've been doing heroin all their lives, all their lives. And then they clean up, they get blood transfusions, they change their blood, then they lose the habit. Then, and who knows what they're into now, you know. But uh, and they're still alive. If you got money and you and you got uh, mm -hmm. the right the right uh, doctor, uh, you can do drugs forever. So yeah, what, what we got to do, and we will do eventually. We can't clean up everything, and we shouldn't even try. You know, do your job. It, uh, unless that's your job, you know, that's your calling. You know. Like to get rid of the plastic problem. I saw something on TV where they got a boat now that goes over the rivers and like a vacuum cleaner and it sucks up all the plastic. And have you heard about that? Yeah, I've heard it uh, doesn't work as well as some of the creators say. It sucks up a lot of wildlife, whatever. Who knows? Like it's we got to do something about plastic, but. Uh... I mean, climate change is a bigger problem than, than drugs, is what we're all probably saying. <laughs> yeah, true. Saving the planet. I, I got a, I got a plan. I, uh, I got a great plan how to how to fix society, uh, but you know who knows if it ever gets implemented. Because I've always foresaw things. You know, like I I tried to make it an electric bike uh, back in eighty back in the eighties anyway. 84, 85, somewhere around there. Uh, and I did. I made a little electric tricycle. And, and it only worked, you know, in the yard. And I got bored. <laughs> but I foresaw a lot of things, things coming. 
and and like this pandemic you know the pandemic really is is a reboot of earth you know because we're heading so heavy into that uh, climate change that we needed it like a computer you got to turn everything off and then turn everything back on again and and that's exactly what we did with uh, with the pandemic and 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 we got computers now that that are changing our lives i i realized that you know that eventually computers will solve uh paralysis you know where people with spinal injuries you know they're, they're going to be able to put a, a chip in the body that will act like a spinal cord uh and and do all the functions and even better in some ways you know the question is if a spinal implant will have bluetooth <laughs> that's a good question it'll probably be a new one you know <laughs> who knows all of a sudden you, you hit a guy and you got a guy dancing over in the corner <laughs> so I Tommy, think, how old are you how is your health now my health is is perfect it's great it's great i'm uh right now i'm still you know i'm enjoying the lockdown and I'm doing a lot. I, I, I work out. I try to work out almost every day. I walk. Every time I feel like taking a nap, I get up and walk. <laughs> Instead of, because I know if I take a nap, I'm just going to want another nap. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask you, because you pretty famously um, treated your cancer with cannabis. And both my parents have struggled with cancer. Uh, both of them kind of refused to take cannabis. I keep trying to convince them, like, what's the harm? I'm not saying take cannabis instead of chemotherapy but you could combine both and it seems like it what was your experience like it's, it's a karma it's a karma you know i i know i uh immediately i had a, a what do you call it uh, my butt removed you know the anal operation and i have a colostomy bag and so during the healing process i i started doing a cbd oil and injection right into the muscle and so i did that it got me i i, I never ever got hooked on op opioids oxycontin anything like that i i was hooked up to it i was pounding the hell out of that button <laughs> you know? okay. i was i was taking advantage of all my, all my nice. op opioid times you know uh but as soon as i got out of the hospital i i called turkey did everything and just just do my weed but i i've never had that i've always been mellow i've never had that uh that anxious thing that people get you know junkies get you know <laughs> you know alcoholics junkies you know they, i need something you know i've never had that but i i learned how to exercise because exercise will give you the same high as as drugs you know um, that's why they, that's why you know you see people out there running in the in the rain. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're getting their heroin, you know. Right, it's a uh, endocannabinoids, endorphins. Those are related to cannabinoids and and opioids. Yeah, that's why people that exercise a lot, if they like, don't get their exercise in, they get really grouchy. They get mad. <laughs> the, the body gets pissed off because the body wants to be moved. You know, like a racehorse. You know, wants to run, wants to run. It's been trained. You got to run. In the body, that's why you know you sit down too long, you get used to it. You're not you're not long for the planet. You're gonna, you know. Uh, so you got to keep moving because when you when you're moving, you're, you're doing exactly what the body was designed to do. You see, 
that's why in this physical world we live in, you know, when there's drought, like Sam Kennison used to say, he would, he would say, this is sand. You can't grow anything with sand. Move. <laughs> you go somewhere where there's some dirt and water. <laughs> and uh, it was so true, you know. But, uh, yeah, the exercise, that, that's always been my secret. It, it cures everything. It cures a broken heart. My son, you know, when he'd have a broken heart, some girl left him or something. Well, I do, Dad. I said, go work out. And what will happen is that you take all that anger and all that, that tension and you push it, you're pushing weights. Next thing you know, you're looking like a hunk. And pretty soon you forgot the name of the girl that, that, that you once were crying over because you got so many looking at what a beautiful body you got. Yeah. So. Do you still play? Do you do you still play music in your spare oh, yeah. time? Yeah. In your oh yeah. Time? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Who are some yeah. of your favorite artists alive today? Today? Yeah. Well, I, I like Dave Chappelle as a comedian. Mm-hmm. I, I love the the state he's in now. Um, and uh, God, I'm seeing a lot of people on YouTube and that you know that. Really impressive, you know, street, a lot of street people. I, yeah, but I've been watching mo- mostly, uh, what do you call it, TV shows. And, you know, I'm catching up on all that. It's funny now because my taste, I, I, I can't take horror. <laughs> I don't like that. I don't like those images. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah, no, I like, you know, you know what I really like now is travel shows. You know, yeah. here, here, beautiful Italy. Oh, I love travel shows. I miss Anthony oh, Bourdain. He his show was the best. Oh, I loved Anthony Bourdain. Yeah, I was kind of bummed when he when he OD'd yeah. the, the the way he did. You know, but I understood totally because you know. Oh no! It, it it was it wasn't an OD. It was a suicide. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, you know, he had done he had done everything. You know, once you once you're a heroin addict, it's just a matter of time before you go back. Like alcoholism, you know, there's going to come a time. You know, that's why they count the days. I'm clean three months. I'm clean six years. I'm clean thirty years because they know eventually it's going to be. I'm not clean anymore. <laughs> well, there's two of us on here. You're talking to that that are in that the you know that would yeah, qualify yeah. as that and. I don't count the days. <laughs> yeah, so I, I I definitely used to use use heroin. So I'm 31. Back in my 20s, I I, I did heroin and oh yeah, I, I don't count days anymore. It's just like you know, good. It's like moved moved down. Well, you you you've you've been down that road. Yeah, you know? no, definitely. I mean, hey, listen, some of the most admired people in my life, John Coltrane, you know, Miles Davis. You know, all those guys, yeah, all of them, all of them, they're smacked out. The reason, they asked me how come I, you know, I once asked Lenny Bruce's, Tony, uh, his uh, dealer, the guy that gave him the dope that killed him. I said to Tony, I said, what's the big deal with heroin? How come there's so many people on heroin? He didn't say a word. He reached in his pocket, pulled out a packet of heroin and gave it to me. (laughs) (laughs) And I put it in my put it in my pocket. Then I took it out of my pocket, got home, put it in the sock drawer, 
And then a month later, I took it out of a sock drawer and I put it in the toilet, flushed it. I did not want to find out because I knew. Yeah. Because I knew. If well, probably Miles and Coltrane, all these guys, you know. But, you know, I never. Well, no, I take that back. I did know a, a bodybuilder that, that was a junkie. He was an alcoholic first, then he's a junkie. But no, hey, that's that's what we're here to do. You know, experience, experience, live, you know. Well, You're, I'd maybe, say if you still had Lenny uh, Bruce's dope around, I'd, I'd, I'd probably give it another shot. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's a test. I've been tested many, many, many times, many times. And uh, so far, you know, I, right now, I've got too much to lose. You know, Remember when Trump was saying, what do you got to lose? What do you got to lose? Well, I look around, I got a lot to lose. And so I, I, I'm staying. In. And besides, when you, when you find the reason why you're here, when you find that out, then, wow. Life really becomes uh, a waiting game <laughs> for the next test because you're always tested. You're tested every day, and uh, and and as long as you—that's the faith. As long as you got faith, man, you will survive the test. Uh, well, since you keep mentioning faith, uh, how do you describe your faith? Do you have like a religious doctrine? Do you consider yourself a Buddhist or Christian or whatever? I mean, maybe you don't have one. I have them all. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I've discovered the essence of all religion. And, and, uh, and, I, and I, I, it's just something that I know. And I've, I, I've been taught by... by uh, in, in prison, you know, because uh, we have angels. We all have angels. And uh, my angels, I, I, I'm very tight with them. And they've, uh, they've shown me, sometimes physically, but usually just through, you know, my senses. Through weed, actually, the, the, the cannabis. It was, that, was a, that's, that was a burning bush that turned Moses on. <laughs> and and it's the it's same burning bush that I talked to. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. Kathleen Harrison uh, talks about that. Um, you know, that there's like a spirit in uh, traditional cannabis use that the mother spirit or something like that. It's really interesting. I, I can kind of feel that when I smoke. What we all have, and I'll leave you with this. We all have a, a God app built into us ourselves just like you have an app on your phone like a zoom app you know a, a photo app we have a god app every one of us and it's the essence of our being and all you have to do to make your life whatever you want it to make it is to access that god app and the way you access it is so simple all you have to do is think of God. You can't have two thoughts in your mind at the same time, no matter who you are. Even if you're a chess player, you know, and, and like, like I always think of life kind of like swimming. You know, we all can swim, but in order to swim, you got to get over your fear. 
of drowning. And you got to know how to move your arms and legs to keep you from drowning, to keep you above the water. And then when you learn that, then next thing you know, you're swimming because you know how to move faster and faster because we, we came from the ocean, you see. And so a lot of times people, they, they, they're afraid to swim, so they'll cling to the side of the pool or the side of their life. They'll cling to something that's, that's okay and safe. You know, I'm, I'm okay here. And a lot of times, and for a good reason, a lot of people live in the past because their past was either so brutal or so beautiful that they can't leave the past. And so with the God app, use that God app to take you wherever you want to go and what do whatever you want to do. It's all doable. If you got to write, if you got to write a song or something, don't do it yourself. Say, God, help me. <laughs> and the miracles will come. Now, you know what the secret is? Is that you cannot share this knowledge with anybody unless they ask. That's yeah. the key. Yeah. I was listening to some Ram Das recently, and he talks about um, how true compassion is is not trying to pull somebody into your worldview. Like you're not just trying to save somebody. That's the, the real Christian or not Christian, but evangelical, uh, like worldview that like yeah. you have to save everybody from themselves. And it's like, nobody that didn't ask to be saved will accept that. You have to just only when they're ready, then you can share this with them. I agree with that. Um, I learned a, a great lesson in, in Cal- when I first moved to California, <clears throat> you know, I couldn't stay away from the beach. Because I grew up in Canada, you know, there's no, no <laughs> beach anywhere. And so I was at the beach almost every day. And so one time I'm in the water and, and I see a guy bobbing in the water. And he looks like a, like a, a dead body. You just lay in, you know, just bobbing. And so I go over and I thought, oh, I better help this body. I better bring this body to shore. You know, I, I felt, you know, I got to help. And as soon as I touched him, he put his head up. What? You know, what are you doing? And then I realized this guy, that's the way he, he, he deals with water. <laughs> yeah. He likes, and, and it was a great lesson. It was a great lesson, you know. So stay on your own towel. That's what the yoga, yoga say, you know, and it's, a, and that's what you do. And sometimes it's hard, you know, especially when you see something going down that, you know, um, but then again, that God app, because a lot of times, you get like this, oh God, what am I going to do? You hear how natural that, that phrase is? Oh my God, oh my God. But you see, it works. Is that, that's the only phrase that people do when they're making love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, thank you so much for the, you know, the spiritual stuff. That, that's not really what we cover on the show at all, but I, I'm really glad that we can branch out into that. This is, uh, this has been great. You, you can't talk cannabis. With me, anyway, without getting spiritual, yeah, because because that's 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 the burning bush. It's awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll wrap up there. Um, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. It's been really great to talk to you. My pleasure. Really great Anytime. We'll, we'll do it again. Okay. Okay. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Narcotica, an independent production by Chris Moraff, Zachary Siegel, and Troy Farah. And I'm your co-producer, Garrett Farah. 
Our theme music is by Glassboy. Additional music is by Jesse Spillane. And Jenny Shea is the voice of Narcotica. Narcotica is an ad-free program, and we would like to keep it that way. So if you like us and think we're cool, you could help the show by pledging to us on Patreon. But if that's not your style, that's fine. Still help us out by spreading the word. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, anywhere where podcasts are available. And be sure to follow us on your preferred flavor of leading cause of depression, like Facebook or Twitter. Hope you guys enjoyed the show. It's a little bit of a weird one, but I think that's okay. Have a very nice night.